Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, and it is my great pleasure to have with me today my friend and great Middle East policy journalist, analyst, and author, Omar Rahman. Omar is currently a fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs, where he focuses on Palestine, Middle East geopolitics, and American foreign policy in the region. He is also a non-resident fellow at the Baker Institute for Public Policy, and he's currently working on a book about Palestinian defragmentation in the post-Oslo era. He's also a frequent speaker on panels, at conferences, and in the media. And of course, I'll include his full bio in the show notes. So Omar, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Laura. It's great to be here. So I'm going to start us off, as always, with a little bit of context for today's call, because we have no idea when people will be watching or or listening to it. Um, So the key piece of context for today's conversation is, of course, uh, the war on Gaza, which uh, is now in its fifth month which is mind boggling. Um, During this war, Israel has uh, systematically depopulated and destroyed most of the Gaza Strip, killing upwards of 30,000 Palestinians. Um, That number is based on the numbers that we know are dead. And then on top of that, the numbers that that are, when assesses are under buildings and have not been counted, um, probably around half of those are children. Um, And while Israel has done all of this ostensibly for the sake of eradicating Hamas, air quotes on that, and freeing hostages taken on October 7th, two things are at this point, sitting on February 20th, um, pretty much clear to anyone paying attention. Uh, First, Israel cannot militarily eradicate Hamas. And this is an assessment we're hearing increasingly and publicly from intelligence experts, including from Israel and the U.S. And we heard it from lots of experts, including probably both me and Omar at the beginning of this war. Um, And two... Uh, The only significant success Israel has had in freeing hostages uh, came from negotiations, not military action. Yet, as of this writing, Israel is not doubling down on negotiations. It is doubling down on military action, including an assault on Rafah, which is expected to escalate as we get towards Ramadan. Rafah, again, is located next to the Egypt border with more than a million Palestinians there who are displaced from the rest of the Gaza Strip. Uh, it's just too dire to even talk about. You can find, we did a podcast on this uh, last week. You can look at that if you're interested. So in parallel, we have news breaking um, that Israel is constructing new infrastructure to cut off the northern Gaza Strip from the south. We have news breaking, which is still not entirely clear, of Egyptian groundworks that are taking place in the northern Sinai, whether that's to create some sort of buffer zone or a concentration camp for Palestinians, or we don't know what at this point. And Israel is also clearing a buffer zone inside the Gaza Strip. Um, So all of that is uh, the context for today. And what I asked Omar to do today, and this is a huge, huge ask I'm asking, is what I'm calling the tour d'horizon of the region. Uh, So we're going to try to like look across the various uh, the various equities across the region and how they're impacted by what's happening today and where things maybe go. So we're going to dig right in. Omar, over to you. The first question I want to ask you is on Palestinians. Um, the topic of the book you're working on is Palestinian defragmentation in the post-Oslo era, which is a huge topic. Can you start us off today by talking about how the very idea of Palestinian defragmentation, or now I'd even wonder about Palestinian refragmentation, um, is impacted? by the current war. And in light of October 7th and its aftermath, can you talk about what you see as the options for Palestinian leadership 
going forward, including uh, with respect to the continued existence and in the eyes of Palestinians, legitimacy of Hamas. Again, thanks, Laura, for having me. Um, you know, that is, uh, it, it's a big topic. It's something I could probably take your whole podcast uh, to answer, uh, but I'm going to save uh, your listeners that. Um, we'll have you back just to talk about that sometime. So we'll do <laughs> this is going to be the, the, the 101 like thing. We'll have you back for the graduate level discussion another time. Sure. We'd be happy to, but it just it requires, uh, you know, a bit of background to understand what I mean by defragmentation. I think all your uh, listeners probably understand that fragmentation is part of the fundamental condition of Palestinian life that through war, um, you know, several wars, and through Israeli policies, uh, colonial policies aimed at divide and conquer, divide and rule uh, that have established a, an apartheid regime from the river to the sea, that the Palestinian people have been pulverized as a nation into these uh, fragmented parts. Um, obviously, we have Gaza, we have the West Bank, we have Palestinian citizens of Israel, we have those in Jerusalem, there are refugees within the West Bank itself, there's area A, B, and C. Uh, again, I'll spare you all of that, but you know there are there's legal fragmentation, there's territorial fragmentation, there's geographic fragmentation uh, among Palestinians. Um, and as I said, you know a, a lot of that has to do with Israeli policy aimed at that fragmentation. But when you look at the underlying trends, uh, and so you know when I started this, even back in 2012 with my master's thesis, but really in 2018 and 2019, when I was looking at, when I, when I started writing the book, uh, you can see that the dynamics on the ground are creating the conditions for a convergence of Palestinians across those lines of fragmentation. And defragmentation, ironically, is also, you know, in large part, I think, a function of Israeli policy. And I don't want to take anything away from Palestinian agency that's aimed at unifying Palestinians and bringing them together. But when you're dealing with structural changes, I think, that are needed to kind of create those type of opportunities. I think we're looking at, um, in large part, uh, Israeli policies. And 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 the major one of those, um, and I was really looking at Palestinians that are under Israeli rule, uh, one is the undermining of, an, of, of a Palestinian state, preventing it from becoming a possibility, which forces the Palestinian National Movement and the PLO and those who are committed to that as part of their agenda to reformulate their plans. That hasn't really happened yet, and it's happening in other parts of the Palestinian National Movement, or people are looking at rights-based struggle, equal rights, all that kind of stuff, binational state. But among the PLO, it really hasn't uh, fully happened yet. Um, and that eventually that's going to kind of lead to a mutual struggle uh, for equality um, as Palestinians face kind of a, you know, a fragmentation of their political agenda. Um, for Palestinian citizens of Israel, their own political agenda within Israel has also failed as a result of Israeli policy. Uh, and there are different streams of political streams within among the Palestinian citizens of Israel, you know, there, but basically they can boil down to those who are seeking autonomy within Israel for the Palestinian community there, and those who are seeking integration. Um, and both of those failed because, again, Israel is unwilling to countenance either. Um, you know, and the harder they pushed over time, the more assertive they become as a community politically, the harder they pushed, the more clear their rejection was. Uh, and they are excluded from meaningful participation in Israeli political and social life. And so that's kind of produced a profound sense of alienation. Uh, in which this community is also looking for a path forward, right? So they're alienated, they're in a sort of political limbo, and the Palestinians in the occupied territories 
uh, and, and, and writ large are also alienated and looking and, and in a sort of political limbo. And they're, so they're searching for a way forward. They're both facing this kind of singular system of apartheid uh, across uh, the, the geographical space. And I would say that for the first time in their history, they're on the same page politically, that their political agendas uh, are overlapping uh, around the issue of equality uh, and potentially an anti-apartheid struggle. We haven't fully gotten there yet, but you can see that the conditions are there. Israel has erased the green line for all intents and purposes as a meaningful construct, uh, and it's holding the entire population within this, this kind of system that's under this regime. Uh, and we've seen over time that economically, socially, uh, these Palestinian communities have started to come together. And there are there are reasons for that, not just in, in terms of desire, but, you know, it's cheaper on the other side. And, you know, there, there, are, there are reasons that have pushed these communities together, but they've created those these ties since 1967. But politically, they haven't really done it, not at a formal level, not at an institutional level. Uh, and part of the reason for that, again, is that they've had differing political agendas over that time. You know, if the Palestinians are trying to create a state in the occupied territories, then that doesn't include the Palestinian citizens of Israel. So they're outside of that construct. But if you're now trying to create a single state or an equal rights struggle, then suddenly you're opening uh, room for that kind of uh, thing. So the conditions are ripening. I and mean, there's, a, there's a really good quote from Azmi Bashada that I came across, the, politi the political philosopher that's a Palestinian citizen of Israel, and he was a political leader within Israel uh, from 1997 that really, uh, I was, as I was doing my research, it kind of hit home. I just want to quote him. He said, if one day political options narrow down to a binational state, we will rediscover that we are one people. Perhaps we will have to redefine our relations with each other. And I was using that as like the, you know, that kind of headline quote in the book, because I think it, it demonstrates what we're talking about here. Now, now to the main question, October 7th, uh, and how it affects that. I think Israel's greatest fear is that kind of convergence among Palestinians who now represent a demographic majority uh, between the river and the sea, not to mention the refugees outside. Um, and so, you know, even if you go back to 2006 and 2007, you had the release of the Future Vision documents, which is um, which were documents uh, created or, or written by you know some intelligentsia within uh, the Palestinian community within Israel. Uh, but what they did was it was firmly articulating a sense of identity, Palestinian identity, and belonging within the larger Palestinian nation. And the reaction from that within Israeli society, this kind of hand-wringing, was immense. It was a freakout uh, to just that thing. They said, we're, we're, we take our Israeli citizenship seriously, but overall, uh, we are part of the Palestinian nation, and we are seeking you know, a, a solution uh, to the Palestinian problem. So if you fast forward a little bit to May 2021 and the unity intifada, and, and, and this kind of would confirm the thesis of my book to me, you have the galvanization of Palestinians around these ideas uh, of unity and, and and everything else, but it also it freaked the Israelis out. Uh, and and what I saw and what I wrote about at the time in May 2021 was I, I saw the apartheid state reacting to its foundations shaking, to its foundations being challenged. And that was kind of like, the, the reaction to it was a sort of a trial run for where we are now. I think October 7th is another instance of the foundations shaking. It's happening on a, a different reason. Uh, the, the pretext for it was different, uh, but it was a challenge to 
the apartheid state, to Israel's system of management over the Palestinians, particularly in the Gaza Strip, but also it's related to Jerusalem, it's related to what was happening elsewhere on the Palestinian scene. Um, but the reaction to it from the Israeli side is really, uh, a, you know, a, the the attempt to create a paradigm shift in terms of Gaza. Uh, and because the, Gaza poses, like all the Palestinians within their homeland, poses a dilemma for Israel and for especially the Israeli right, which is seeking a greater Israel. Um, and so um, I think you, you kind of have that, that dilemma. And I think um, uh, Israel is responding to that and trying to eliminate uh, Palestinians in Gaza and drive them out. And this is, you know, apartheid is a response to the dilemmas that Israel's faces with Palestinians being there because it doesn't want to live on equal terms with them. So it's kind of caging them in their reservations. In the same way, you know, Native Americans in this country, uh, you know, what happened to them? They're either pushed into reservations or they were eliminated, annihilated, right? Israel's doing the same thing to the Native population. It's either pushing them into their Bantu stands, their reservations, their uh, enclaves, or if it can, if it has the pretext to do it, driving them out like it did in 1948. So we're really in a 1948 moment. Um, personally, I thought uh, when I was writing the book, I thought I was I was I became very fearful of the possibility of genocide, of sweeping violence against the Palestinians. I thought it would come as a result of this convergence, that the convergence would challenge the system for equality, and the Israelis would respond violently in a sweeping fashion. I didn't think that it would, you know, nobody thought that Hamas could wage this, this, uh, you know, this, this action against Israel that would break out of its confines. And I think that kind of surprised, but the response is, is, is in a sense, is in a sense the same. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I think in the last few years, I, I was warning about that a lot. Um, again, I think we're in a 1948 moment for the Palestinians and Israelis Netanyahu himself has been talking about a return to 1948 for a long time to get away, that this conflict didn't start in 1967. He has that in, in common with the Palestinians, actually, um, uh, and how it, you know, this conflicts with their goal of a greater Israel. Um, you know, I think they don't want an apartheid state. Uh, you know, that's only a function of the Palestinians being there, but their supremacist ideology allows for it. Um, and but ideally, the Palestinians would just disappear. And I think their supremacist ideology allows for that, too. Um, so I think, you know, that's what makes the situation very dangerous. Um, and, you know, there is a reason the far right in Israel was having a political moment even before October 7th. Their vision was really resonating. Uh, so at its core, I think, you know, what is happening now is reinforcing the trends that gave rise to defragmentation, the alienation among Palestinians everywhere, uh, the narrowing of options. Um, you know, in fact, I didn't include it in my original thesis, but the the, the refugees, uh, you know, because I was only looking at the dynamics under Israeli rule. But um, if Israel is creating a new refugee situation, I think that could reignite the convergences uh, outside of that and bringing this issue to its radical root form and exposing all the myths of what Israel is and what Israel is trying to do. Um, so I think, you know, all of Israel today is saying no to a Palestinian state, not just Netanyahu. Then what? I think we're reaching that kind of moment of truth. So um, 
one last thing on this issue and before I tackle the, the, the policy and politics, if I'm not going too long, am I okay? Continue for a second, but I want to actually take you on further, but, but go on. Yeah. Um, it's just to say that, you know, I think a lot of what Israel is doing right now is messaging to the Palestinian people. It's sending a message that if you raise your hand, if you raise your fist to us, we will act without mercy. It's trying to instill a sense of fear in the, in the Palestinian that, you know, don't come together. Don't uh, try to challenge uh, what we've created here, uh, or this will be the result. And so is that going to affect defragmentation in the long run? I think that fear is real. I think there's a reason we're not seeing, you know, uh, I mean, there, there is a second intifada, a third intifada happening right now, but I don't think it's happening in full in part because there's a lot of fear around what Israel is doing. And that can happen also within uh, Israel itself, Israel proper, so to speak, or 1948 territories uh, and in the occupied territories. So that's something. And and you want to jump in before I address the Palestinian political? No, I was just going to say on the, on the defragmentation, the part listening to you, I, I find, and I've found myself thinking this a lot in recent years, and people may be familiar with the Israel Victory Project, which actually I think started in the U.S. and then moved to Israel, which is the argument which basically says the reason we haven't had peace for years is because Israel was never permitted to finish the 1948 war. And, and the 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 ten that that's intention with the basic thinking of most Jewish American supporters of Israel is that peace is about reconciliation and, and coexistence based on forgetting about forty eight and using sixty seven as the way forward to a two state solution. And we were told for years you can't talk about forty eight if you're talking about forty eight you're anti Semitic. And we've had this convergence of this is going to be a zero sum outcome, right? It's zero sum whether you're from Palestinian side or the Israeli side. It's zero sum. And, and that's, I think, a lot of what we're seeing on the ground today, um, which is just a direct repudiation of the understanding that most Jewish Americans and American supporters of Israel have about Israel's intentions and about the objectives of any political process on the ground. Um, okay, so why don't you go back and finish the Palestinian stuff, and then we're going to whiz through some other things more quickly, because this is super important. I don't want to cut you off. Okay, yeah, I and I agree with you. I think, you know, I was warning about that because I think... Uh, Israel was driving this towards an existential confrontation with the Palestinians. And I think that's kind of where we're at the moment. Um, regarding the Palestinian leadership, you know, after October 7th, I think we're seeing the last gasp of the older order. Um, Hamas's fate is, is unknown after this. I don't know how much we can speak on that. I agree with you what you said at the beginning, that eliminating Hamas as a political movement is a, is a fool's errand. That's not going to happen. Uh, but we don't know what Hamas is going to look like um, and what the Palestinian polity is going to look like after uh, this starts to wrap up. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of of uh, faith. Uh, the PA has been absent throughout this process. It's totally discredited. It was totally discredited before. Uh, we only see the PA leadership in relation to kind of U.S. efforts to revive it in order to play some role in 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 you know in their day after. Uh, but also, I think that is. Um, is highly unlikely for for many reasons: capacity, legitimacy. Um, you know, uh, what what what's Gaza going to look like after this is all said and done? So I don't think I, th I think again we're at a very dangerous and uncertain time in Palestinian history uh, in terms of its politics. There's nobody really at the helm uh, steering this thing, and that is a, is a significant danger, unfortunately, and for everybody involved. And 
arguably also an opportunity. I mean, I know there's conversations going on and I think those conversations are very much internal at this time. There's not like, I'd love to have a podcast on that with someone, but I don't think there's anything to have a podcast publicly about at this time. But I, I do think there are people who are recognizing this as both a, a threat and an opportunity and, and trying to think about what that means. No uh, okay. In relation to Palestinian politics, it's definitely an opportunity, but ideally you would want somebody in charge at the helm and leading the kind of fight against what's happening right now. Absolutely. Um, okay, so before I go to the next question, I just want to mention, so you mentioned the um, futures document, the Mustaqbal documents. I'm going to put those into the show notes for people who heard Omar talking about that. And I'll also find a couple of the articles you wrote around May 2021 because you did some really great analysis at the time. So that'll be in the show notes as well for people who want to read more. I want to pivot to something that you've been working on a lot in recent years, which is um, Abraham Accords and normalization. Um, and I'll put links in the show notes to some of the stuff you've written on this. So I guess I'll just say in light of October 7th and its aftermath, I mean, it's still ongoing. We're not at the aftermath stage entirely yet. Um, and in light of what looks like we're about to see a greater escalation in Gaza, including the possibility of um, you know, large numbers of refugees. And we'll talk maybe a little bit later about, you know, what it means if Israel is cutting off access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. What does that mean <laughs> for normalization for the states that have already normalized first? And what does it mean for the prospects of additional normalization? I did a podcast last week um, on Saudi Arabia with a Saudi analyst. I I'd be really curious about your thoughts um, because particularly if Trump comes back in, I mean, that's still at the top of the agenda for the Biden administration, a grand deal that's going to fix everything. Um, and it'll certainly be, I think, high on the, on the agenda for a Trump administration. Sure. Um, I think two things, uh, just to understand at the outset. One, uh, normalization between Israel and the Arab states uh, is driven at its core, not by the bilateral relationship and the value that produces between Israel and those Arab states. It's driven by the relationship between those Arab states and the United States. Uh, so that's really at its core. And, and I think that's very important to understand. And two is that normalization after, as soon as Trump left office, had totally stalled uh, over the past few years. People were talking about it. Uh, and there obviously was some deepening um, of the relationships that had already been established, but no new countries had entered uh, into uh, a, a, a normal relationship with Israel after that. And there are there are reasons for that. And by the uh, way, we're not talking even normal. We're talking quasi-normal, right? Yeah. These are not, by any normal standard, normal. Sure, I just mean kind of like, you know, a, a, a recognition of each other and as the establishment of, 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 uh, of relations. Uh, no country had done that after he left office. And that's not because Biden didn't try. Um, it, it just, it had started to stall. Um, and there are reasons for that. And I think the intervening years kind of exposed the weaknesses underlying normalization. And in my writing, I identify uh, five major, major weaknesses. I'm not going to get into all that. Um, but what we saw also was uh, a decision to have a rapprochement with Iran, which I think is kind of counter the, to the logic of, of normalization. But we saw the Emiratis do it first, and then the Saudis do it with Chinese mediation. Uh, and that's important because I think the region started to try to move past the competition and the rivalry uh, that had consumed it uh, for years. And there, there are reasons for that, the, the kind of attrition, uh, the exhaustion, the depletion of resources, fighting this competition over influence in the region uh, that was producing no winners. And I think it, there was a recognition that it was going to produce no winners. And so um, there was a realization that, well, we need to kind of stabilize the situation. Israel, normalization with Israel was more about coalition building to kind of confront 
regional threats like Iran, like the Muslim Brotherhood and stuff like that. So it was actually adding and building tension. Uh, and what happened was that those countries, the Gulf countries, were on the front lines of this confrontation with Iran because those Iran's not going to strike Israel or the United States. But those countries, it could use its you know, its its allies in the region to strike at. And it did. And the response from Israel and the West was less than satisfactory. It raised alarm bells for these countries because ultimately nobody came to protect them, not in any way. I mean, this required foolproof protection for the Gulf states to feel safe. Uh, and that wasn't going to happen. And if you've ever lived in Dubai or any of these places, you realize that if, if missiles start hitting buildings, you know, 90% of the population is are, are foreigners, you know, it, it, this will create dire, dire circumstances. So anyway, uh, I think U.S. credibility on that front was eroding. And so these states started to look in different directions to resolve uh, their needs on that front. Um, you know, it started shifting a little bit in the lead up to October 7th, in the months before October 7th, we started seeing movement on the Saudi file. Um, but I think that was more of a product of, of U.S. national interest. You know, prior, I think normalization was about serving the Israeli national interest uh, and, and using the United States and its foreign policy uh, to leverage that on behalf of Israel for the Arab states. I think what we started to see prior to October 7th on the Saudi issue was a recognition by the United States that, um, that and there are reasons for this, the Ukraine war and, and, and geopolitical competition with China, but we started seeing Saudi kind of move a little too close for comfort towards the Chinese um, and de-dollarization and, and the BRICS and, and all these kind of things. And I think that scared the White House. And so there started to be real motivation to bring the Saudis back. And I think then Israel became the pretext for the White House to bring the Saudis back because in order to give the Saudis what they wanted, which is like, you know, a NATO level uh, defense pact and, you know, their wish list and, 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 you know, nuclear technology and all these things, which would have been impossible to pass through Congress. Well, if you have Israel, it's kind of like the, the, you know, the sugar that helps the medicine go down. If you're kind of, you know, on the hill, as, as you very well know. And so I think that's where you started seeing motivation. But I was writing at the time and, and I was in a lot of these meetings in Washington this was very much a moving target. I mean, there were a lot of people kind of amplifying and pretending that, you know, we were right around the corner on Israel-Saudi normalization. That's very far from the truth. This was a very much a moving target. The Saudis have their issues. The Israelis were in a, in, in a, in, in a crisis of their own, domestically speaking. Uh, the government in charge was going to do nothing for the Palestinians of substance whatsoever, which the Saudis were demanding. The Americans were heading into an election year. So the timing, the the interest of all the parties uh, was very much open. And I don't think it was it was going anywhere. But one of the weaknesses that I mentioned, one of the five weaknesses, is that relations were dependent on context and context changes. Uh, and the context that was serving the normalization between the UAE and Bahrain and, and the Israelis was this kind of, you know, Oslo... Uh, the PA is is dealing with the Israelis on a daily basis. Everything's a bit on a low boil. Uh, people are starting to kind of forget the Palestinian issue a little bit. And so the costs were low, at least perceived to be low, calculated to be low, um, enough where it was possible to make that move. Um, now we're seeing the opposite end of it October, after October 7th, in which the costs are very high. The region is, is outraged. Uh, at at Israel and the United States. And so any country that pursues relations with Israel is, you know, almost doing a deal with the devil in the eyes of the people. And that raises the cost significantly. Uh, and so I don't think we're going to see any movement 
on normalization whatsoever. Although, again, within the kind of paradigm of you know a comprehensive peace in the region, maybe. But do we actually foresee Israel coming to terms with that? I I don't see it at all. I mean, maybe I'm mistaken, but I don't see not even just this government, but any future government in the near term uh, being able to you know create a state along the 1967 lines. I, I, don't, I don't see that as politically possible or politically salient within Israel. So I, I don't see us getting there. But, um, you know, I think those states, the Gulf states, you know, either lost sight of the risk when they made relations with Israel, they mis mistakenly believed the cost would stay low forever, or they looked at like Egypt and said, well, we can do what Egypt did because Egypt survived the blowback after 1979, the 82 war uh, in Lebanon, the 87 first intifada, the second intifada in 2000, all the bombardments of Gaza and, 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 and their peace treaty with Israel survived. So I think there is a little bit of that calculation. Um, and, and we're going to come back to Egypt in the second. So continue. Yeah. But again, I think, I, I think we're shifting out of this context uh, now permanently as a result of October 7th, this previous context that allowed those relations to be forged. Uh, and so I think it's much more difficult. I don't think you're going to see those bilateral agreements. All right. Um, and I'm going to put, again, there'll be links in the show notes to some of the stuff you've written there. And I, I think it's worth reminding people who are listening or watching this in the future that the regional context for understanding what's happening in Gaza is completely different from that of people watching this war from the U.S., unless you're watching it on social media or digging into regional media. Um, people watching the news in the Gulf, even Gulf states that have relations with Israel, are watching news of buildings with, you know, collapsed with children under them and stuff. They're actually seeing the day-to-day -day of this in a way that Europe and the U.S. largely are not. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right. So I want to move on. Again, we're doing the tour d'horizon of the region. Next, I want to come to Qatar, which doesn't get nearly as much attention as it should these days because it's very much in the news cycle. Um, you recently published a piece entitled Condemning Qatar is Counterproductive, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So let's remind people, this is a country that hasn't normalized with Israel technically, um, but for years has quietly played, I would argue, a key role in Israel's management of Gaza via Qatar's relations with Hamas. And particularly we know about this when, you know, Bibi was, you know, at the beginning of this war yelling about Hamas and Gaza, and people are pointing out that Hamas has basically been financed because Bibi got money to them through Qatar this whole time. Um, so since October 7th, um, we have seen Israel and its supporters, especially in Washington and in Congress, uh, seem almost schizophrenic when it comes to Qatar. We have, on the one hand, people traveling there and meeting with Qataris, you know, urging them to use their good offices with Hamas or their relations with Hamas to help free hostages. On the other hand, we're seeing, you know, ramping up efforts, including from some of the think tanks in Washington, to, to treat Qatar as a scapegoat and blame them for the fact that October 7th happened at all. So can you talk about all of that? Sure. Um, I think that schizophrenia is, is, is part of the, you know, is a function of, in, in some sense, the polarization of our politics within this country. So you're seeing those two things. But yes, I mean, I think you touched on something really important. So it's like, even the ones that are condemning Hamas, or sorry, condemning Qatar, are calling on Qatar to play the role to have the hostages released. And interestingly, they're saying, well, like either either put pressure on Hamas or give them an ultimatum, force them to, you know, kick them out of the country, which is, you know, it, it 
it defies logic because you're you're missing the whole point. They couldn't put pressure on Hamas or they couldn't deal with Hamas or mediate with Hamas if they were giving those type of ultimatums. Hamas would you know leave the country as they did uh, elsewhere. And it's that kind of those kind of ultimatums or 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 heavy handed tactics that prevent the U.S. or anybody else from playing this type of role. Qatar plays this role because it's it's open to all these different political streams. It has good relations with all these political streams, and those would evaporate if it was acting in that particular way. Um, and yes, yeah, so Qatar has played, I think, uh, you know, a very important uh, role here because it it has developed and positioned itself to play this role over a longer period of time. Um, and I think Americans uh, lose sight of, of a few things, lose sight of how diplomacy is done, lose sight of uh, the role that Qatar is, is playing, lose sight of the fact that uh, we asked Qatar to play this particular role under the Obama administration so that we would have a line of communication with Hamas uh, and lose sight of the fact that Israel, as you mentioned, um, was relying on Qatar to play that type of role to stabilize the Gaza Strip uh, in order for it to kind of maintain the status quo uh, that existed. Um, I just, I mean, just a thought, I mean, I, I, sort of devil's advocate, one could almost argue that Palestinians have every reason to be mad at Qatar for enabling 16 years of um, blockade on Gaza by making it possible, by by facilitating relations that enabled Israel to let in just enough stuff to keep the place from exploding. I mean, it's there's it almost something sort of counterintuitive about whose who's who's interest they've been serving all these years. And that's yeah. when, it's, when it's argued now that they're the allies of Hamas, in many ways, they're really an ally of Israel and keeping a blockade on Gaza for 16 years. Sorry, just music loud. Yeah, no, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've heard that argument before. But at the same time, I think, you know, there uh, was good intentions there to help, you know, people that are suffering under, um, under an Israeli blockade that are suffering these kind of conditions and to, to aid them in that effort. And I think Hamas, you know, in their- Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the answer, but it is, it's an interesting flip side when you think about the people you are now wanting to condemn Hamas for enabling, condemn Qatar for enabling Hamas, I think it could equally be condemned for enabling Israel. So it's an interesting just yeah. uh, Well, they were starting to question that internally within Qatar. And you saw, you know, they, they were, they had, you know, the Israelis had asked them to raise the funds right before October 7th and do more. And the, the Qataris were, you know, is is this still worthwhile uh, if this is is the situation? And I think, um, you know, one of the things when it comes to the role that Arab states are being asked to play in the post-October 7th uh, thing is is this role to kind of come in and manage the situation on Israel's behalf, pay all the costs that are involved. And there there's a lot of uh, incredu uh, you know incredulousness like around around that. They don't want to they don't want to play that role because to be honest, that is the trap that the Palestinian Authority plays, right? in which they're managing the situation for Israel. The international community is fitting the bill by paying the Palestinian Authority, and Israel can continue to do about its business uh, of colonization and, and, and apartheid. And I think there's much more of a recognition of that on the Arab side than there was in the past, and an unwillingness to play that role without a clear path towards a Palestinian state and a resolution of conflict. So in that same vein, you talked earlier, you mentioned Egypt, and you talked about Egypt surviving blowback um, from the Camp David Accords, from subsequent wars. I mean, it. So let's go back. So si since the very beginning of this war, those of us as analysts who sort of looked ahead and said as analysts, not about what I like or what I hope, 
um, have looked ahead from day one almost and said, I'm really worried that Egypt is either going to be bribed or coerced into opening up the border and turning part of the Sinai Peninsula into a, a displacement camp, let's call it in the nicest terms for Palestinians, whether that's a prison or a concentration camp or a, a giant refugee camp from which you cannot leave. I mean, that's been the fear since day one. Those fears are obviously ramping up now as Israel's getting towards endgame and Rafah and looks set to push people across the border if, if it can. So I want to ask you, I mean, we don't know if that's going to happen. Maybe it won't. But how do you see the impact of this war on Gaza and, and including the potential flooding of Sinai with the new Palestinian refugee population? And as a reminder, most of these people were already refugees from 1948. Um, what does it mean in your mind for the sustainability of the peace treaty? Israel has taken the Camp David Accord sort of for granted. It's part of the basic, their basic, you know, security formula at this point is that their longest land border, it's a big deal um, having that peace treaty stable. And, 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 what are the limits for Egypt in terms of its domestic political uh, scene? Um, I'm seeing interviews with Egyptians who are outraged at what's happening on the border, outraged that Egypt isn't doing more to help Palestinians. And if it ends up playing this role of uh, accommodating a new refugee population and thus enabling ethnic cleansing in Gaza, how does that play for them regionally? Is this something that they can sustain the way they sustain Camp David, once again being the country that is held most responsible for selling the Palestinians down the river? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot there uh, in terms of questions. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. I think the Egyptians are under a lot of pressure from a lot of different, uh, in, a, in a lot of different ways. Uh, they face the economic pressures of their own uh, failing economy, their own economic crisis, which makes them, I think, vulnerable or more pliable when it comes to the type of pressures that the, you know, the West, the United States and others might put on them in order to accommodate Israel, its plans uh, and the refugees itself. So I think that was uh, always a fear early on. At the same time, uh, you know, there is 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 domestic pressure uh in uh, both among the public which as you said is extremely angry for Israel's for Egypt's complicity in what's happening right now they were angry at Egypt's complicity in the 17 years of blockade but maintaining this blockade or not getting opening the border to allow aid and people to come and go is is complicity in Israel's genocide right now so that uh is a is a huge internal pressure at the same time they are they are fearful because um Egypt has struggled with the security situation in the Sinai for a very long time. They finally, you know, in their in their uh, statements, have got it under control, <laughs> uh, and they're very fearful of allowing millions of angry, traumatized refugees into the into the Sinai Peninsula and the kind of destabilize, destabilization that could create. So, I think there are a, a number of pressures uh, they're dealing with. I think they're threatening to abrogate the peace treaty with Israel how much uh, credibility there is behind it, I'm not particularly sure. I think, again, the, the peace treaty with Israel has meaning and much much more meaning than you know these agreements and normalization agreements that Abraham Accords do with the Gulf states uh, because you know this is a border that has seen a lot of war and hostility uh, and Israel conquer a huge swath of, of Egyptian territory in the past. So it, it's meaningful in that sense. But it's also very meaningful, again, because... 
these relationships often run through Washington. And, and Egypt is fearful that, like all the other countries that have relations with Israel, of if you get rid of that treaty, if you end that treaty and get into a hostile state with with the United with the with Israel, uh, what that will do to the relationship, the bilateral relationship with the United States, and I think that is one of the things that underpins these relationships with Israel and makes them much more sturdy uh, than they would otherwise be. Um, what Egypt is going to do in the face of starving hundreds of thousands of people and children? That are dying on its border. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know. Does it acquiesce to that and allow them knowing that Israel will not allow them to return? And again, I talked about a 1948 moment for both the Palestinians and the Israelis. It's a 1948 moment for the Egyptians and for the Jordanians, because they are living this moment in hindsight of what happened in 1948 uh, and the instability it created in their own countries, Egypt was, you know, in some sense, didn't have the refugee population because it came to manage the Gaza Strip, and that's where the refugees were housed. Um, but it dealt with the ramifications of that and the kind of, you know, uh, the use of the Gaza Strip to to try to return to Israel or try to return to historic Palestine, and the, you know, the uh, the uh, uh, retaliation by Israel against Egyptian territory, against Jordanian territory, and all that kind of stuff. And just the destabilization that this refugee situation created regionally um, on in many different facets. And so everybody is, is fearful of this moment. I think the Egyptians are fearful. Um, what's happening, I mean, this crazy news about the, the, you know, the camp that's being created. And it's actually, there were rumors of it for months, uh, but now there's been kind of leaked reporting, uh, is very uh, frightening. I think, you know, again, I think the Egyptians are, are maybe um, contingency planning to an extent, I don't think they still want to allow uh, uh, you know, millions of people to cross into the Sinai, but this is like planning around what they would do if that were to happen um, in a in a very uh, frightening and frightening way. Yeah, I, I agree. It is very frightening, and we will all be watching that closely. I want to pick up on. We have two more questions. Um, you mentioned Jordan. Uh, so what about Jordan? Jordan is the other country that has a stable and U.S.-backed peace agreement with Israel. Let's remember that Jordan is the is the country that previously brought a case to the ICJ on the route of the security barrier, which people forget about. Um, and they did that at the time. My understanding from my Jordanian official friends is that they see actions that Israel takes against Palestinians, including in Gaza, as existential. Um, given the size of the Palestinian population in Jordan, that is understandable. So I'm interested in your thoughts on what this current crisis means for Israel's treaty with Jordan. How does it manage domestic public opinion, which is also enraged and energized, including a huge portion, which is a Palestinian um, identity? Um, also, the question of Jerusalem, um, Israel's actions in Jerusalem, what we see is the in, the the potential of cutting off access to Al-Aqsa during Ramadan, which violates I believe it violates the peace treaty with Jordan because Jordan is technically the custodian of the holy sites in Jerusalem. So mm -hmm. how does that look? And I guess, I mean, how, how do they navigate a reality when you have an Israeli government, which to a great extent really is happy with the Jordan is Palestine? We'll keep a peace treaty with you as long as it works. But if the Jordanian, if the Hashemite kingdom falls and Jordan becomes Palestine, that's fine with us. So, so how do they navigate that? And there's one more question after this. 
you're too knowledgeable, Lara, you know, every, all the answers that were come popping to my head, you kind of answered them as, <laughs> as, as, as you went along with that question. But I agree. I mean, Jordan is extremely anxious in this moment. Uh, they see the writing on the wall. Uh, they have, you know, obviously the majority of their population is, uh, is originally Palestinian and are not just them, but, you know, all of Jordan is, is extremely upset and angry over what's happening. Uh, but they are fearful um, and they are, of what Israel is doing, and they're very cognizant of what Israel is doing here and now, and what they've been doing for many years. I mean, this is this is nothing new to the Jordanians. The Jordanians, more than probably any other state, um, has their finger on the pulse of what's happening, uh, you know, in the occupied territories. In 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 that particular sense, I'm not saying that they're they're the you know the 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 most righteous actor or that they you know they have the best policies or anything like that, but they are very aware of what's happening because of how much it affects them at home. Um, I, I would just also remind people that at, beginning, at the beginning of this war, Palestinians in the West Bank, I mean, we saw we saw a period in, in October when there were flyers in the West Bank telling Palestinians to grab their stuff and run to Jordan before they were kicked out. The settlers were doing that. So there's, there is a constant awareness that what's happening in Gaza isn't necessarily limited to Gaza from a Jordanian perspective. Exactly. And that's what I mean. Again, like when it's, you know, they're the ones that recognize that what's happening in Gaza is not is not isolated because they kind of are paying attention to the Israeli Israeli body politic and the statements that are coming out. And again, this is not new. I mean, yes, there's been the statements over the past four and a half months, but um, you know, it, it it's tapping into something much older. You mentioned, you know, Jordan is Palestine uh, uh, as as you know this kind of right wing. Uh, plan, right? They're cognizant of that and they're fearful of that. And these are the people that are in political power today. Um, and they have an interest in pushing the Palestinians out of the West Bank as well. And that will very much affect Jordan. And what's Jordan able to do about that? Uh, you know, that's that's the kind of questions that's being asked. So it's it's what's happening in Jerusalem today, because, you know, the Ben Gavirs and the Smotriches of the world have their eyes on, you know, a new temple, um, and what what's that going to do to the relationship between Israel and Jordan? What's going to, that's going to do internally in terms of the public sentiment within Jordan itself uh, and how it, it's forced to respond, uh, as well as the refugee situation uh, pushing people out. And so, you know, they're fearful. I think of these sort of paradigm shifts that the Israeli right wing may be contemplating uh, in this moment and having the pretext in, in order to act with you know Western backing. Um, and, you know, in a sense, it's what the Israelis are doing is unthinking. You know, it's ideologically driven. Um, you know, there are you, there are many pragmatists in Israel that also warn about these kind of things. And what are you doing by destabilizing Egypt and Jordan when you have these peace treaties there? And, you know, this is that's the wrong sort of action. But those those that are making decisions right now, I think, are very ideologically driven. And they don't think in, in, in those in those ways. Um, you know. I, I agree. I, I also think they are thinking in sort of 1948 terms, almost fog of war. What we do now <clears> will be normalized after the fact. Don't don't let worries about whether, you know, it's, we, it's better to ask for, you know, forgiveness than permission at this point, or better to demand acceptance than permission. Yeah, but did 40, 1948 give Israel security? Uh, did it ever resolve anything? Um, yes, it, it, you know, it, it it gave them territory and, 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 other, and other things. And I think that's well, what but, they... If, if you ask the ideal the ideologues or their friends in the U.S., the answer is it would have given them security if they'd been allowed to finish the fight and utterly defeat the Palestinians. And and that's I feel like that's where we are right now. This is that finishing 1948 kind of thing. Um, I, I, no, I, I, there, there, 
their citizens were attacked internationally. They were Israel was yeah. attacked from Jordan. It was attacked from Lebanon. It was attacked from here, from there. You know, it's um, I don't think I it may be I a better scenario for them. I'm not saying, but I I think from their point of view, um, that's not what's guiding, what's yeah. not what's their their decision making. All right. So speaking of the regional piece, so last question, which means you can say anything you want about anything, because this this is your grab bag. But so first of all, we haven't talked about Lebanon or the Houthis, and I want to give you a chance to mention both of those. Um, and I want you to talk about it in the context of regional escalation. So just last week, you published a great piece, which I will link to entitled, Is a Regional War Inescapable? And I'm going to quote you to you. You open by writing, since October, the Middle East has edged ever closer to a war unlike any it has experienced before. While there has been plenty of armed hostility over the past 75 years, including between multi-state and non-state actors, the ambit of conflict this time around is so sweeping that it risks engulfing the entire region, region making it both unprecedented and infinitely more dangerous. So I'll stop there. People should read this article. Can you talk more about your thoughts on this question of regional escalation, regional war? And feel free, if you'd like, to relate it to the two pieces we haven't talked about, the Houthis, which are obviously further afield than we've talked about previously, and and I think previously an unknown and unexpected factor in an Israel-Palestine engagement. And then closer to home, we have the escalation between Israel and Hezbollah, which is now almost daily. Probably most Americans are not aware that we have Israelis being killed by Hezbollah rockets, not a huge number, but any is too many. And we have a lot of Israeli, a lot of Palestinians, not sorry, we have a lot of Lebanese, I think it's over 200 at this point, who've been killed by Israeli shooting, Israeli rockets. And this is not just the, you know, Hezbollah commander in Beirut. This is the shelling of towns in South Lebanon in a way that is has not been seen in Lebanon in, in a very, very long time. So if you could talk about all of that and anything else, and then we'll close it off. Sure. Um, the war, like uh, unlike any other, I think, aspect of it is the fact that, um, and, I, and I say, and I think you quoted this, that the region has seen a lot of war. Um, it's seen, uh, you know, wars that are in some sense uh, bring in a lot of actors. Uh, so Lebanon, the Lebanese civil war, for example, there were, you know, many actors involved both internally and externally in that. Uh, and there's been a number of cases uh, in which that was the situation, except they all kind of revolved around a, a single territory uh, or, you know, and, and all the Arab-Israeli wars as well, uh, with the exception of, you know, Sinai uh, and the Golan Heights. Um, so that I, that kind of bring it, but nothing so sweeping as this in which you have this happening in Gaza, in South Lebanon, uh, in Yemen itself, um, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, and all of these things in the Red Sea, which is affecting the economy of all of these states. Um, and, you know, it it forces, in some sense, the involvement. It, they haven't really got involved yet. Uh, but, you know, the, the Saudis, the Emiratis uh, have a lot at stake here. So if they were to somehow get involved, then you have, again, a confrontation like we've seen minimally in the past between the Houthis and the, you know, launching rockets into Saudi Arabia or against you know, groups in Iraq launching against uh, the Emiratis in, 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 in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so you have this possibility for a, a conflagration that the, the, the region has never seen before. And that is extremely dangerous. Um, and when you include uh, the fact that you have, you know, the United States involved and uh, Israel, which is a nuclear armed state that is, you know, as we know, suffers from 
maybe politely saying a, a major victim complex in which it sees kind of existential threat around every corner. You know, if Iran gets involved in a, in a direct confrontation with Israel and is firing rockets at Tel Aviv, does Israel respond with nuclear weapons? I, we don't know. I mean, these are possibilities that people aren't really talking about, but they're they're quite possible. And I'm sure that the Iranians are thinking about that type of thing. And there is a reason that the only thing keeping this in check, uh, as far as I can see, is that no one really wants it. The United States doesn't really want a regional conflagration, although it's it's doing its best to stumble into it. Um, Iran doesn't even want a regional conflagration. All these Hezbollah is, is doing its best, in a sense, to avoid it. It feels compelled to act and to keep this border uh, front active and to put pressure on the Israelis, the Houthis as well. Uh, and there are there are dynamics that um, are actually positive dynamics for them in which they want to kind of keep this fight going against the Israelis and against the Americans because it's benefiting them. That's part of the dynamics that are keeping this alive. But I think everybody's trying to avoid... Uh, a broader regional war, with the exception maybe of Netanyahu and his right-wing cohorts who have, you know, assassinated people in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Uh, and, and that's the closest I've seen to, um, uh, you know, somebody that's, that is trying to, to force the war to escalate. And there are reasons for that. You know, all the Israeli analysts think that Netanyahu wants the war in some sense to go on uh, indefinitely because that prevents or avoids or delays a political reckoning within Israel itself and, and, and Israeli politics. But there are reasons. What I point the finger at is US policy in this instance, because US policy is directed at uh, providing cover, military and political cover for the Israelis to allow them, to enable them to continue what's happening in Gaza. Uh, and that is the source of all the conflict that's happening now in the region. Now, a lot of these things predate, but you know they are inextricably linked to what's happening in Gaza in this particular moment. Um, and uh, as long as what's happening in Gaza continues, not only are the Palestinians going to suffer immensely and are we seeing the, the genocide unfolding, uh, but you're going to see the involvement of all these other actors in the region. And the United States is focused on fighting them which creates its own dynamics of escalation on all these individual fronts with the Houthis, with the Iraqis, with you know, uh, without addressing the source of the conflict. And everybody else is calling for a ceasefire, and the United States is is preventing a ceasefire, uh, at least a ceasefire resolution from happening, and it's not calling on Israel to do one. And so that's creating these kind of dynamics of escalation on all these fronts. And so that's why I kind of point the finger. When it comes to the Houthis, just to kind of answer your question, um, Again, I think there's these dynamics are created in which you take this, you know, sort of marginal actor from a regional standpoint. Obviously, they're not a marginal actor within Yemen, but a marginal actor regionally uh, prior to October 7th. And suddenly they're kind of cast into the limelight um, and are receiving all this regional support and even like global, <laughs> global support in an extent for what they're doing on behalf of the Palestinians. The Americans obviously don't see what the Houthis are doing as uh, you know, as 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 on behalf of the Palestinians, or they're trying not to uh, say that, but the world is 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 adamant that this is a genocide, that what Israel is doing is wrong, and you're seeing these actors who oppose the United States and Israel ideologically in the region uh, responding to to uh, the the genocide that's unfolding. And 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 the the response in the region is is very positive towards them. Uh, they are benefiting from public opinion polling. They are legitimized 
they're gaining support. And so there's those dynamics that are feeding their willingness to continue carrying on the fight. Uh, and the United States uh, is doing its best to, to, to escalate that, even though it seems like it doesn't want to. So and that's a that's a, those are great insights and the the element of the U.S. actually being an itself becoming an escalatory factor I think is little understood um, by a lot of observers of this conflict who see escalation and wonder what the U.S. can they do more to stop it can they do more to prevent it as opposed to is U.S. policy actually one of the factors that is fueling or driving escalation um, I think that's something that people should ponder more I will definitely do so. We're going to have to stop here. Um, so first, Omar, thanks for joining me today. I want to have you back for the deep dive into any one of the questions that we talked about. And when your book comes out, I will absolutely have you back to talk more about the defragmentation piece of it, which we could spend hours on. Um, so thank you for taking the time and joining us today. And we look forward to the next time. Uh, for the audience, thank you for listening and watching. And sorry, we ran a little over time, but it was worth it to continue this conversation. Don't forget, you can follow Omar, or I didn't say this earlier, you can follow Omar on the platform formerly known as Twitter. It's at Omar, O-M-A-R-R-A-H-M-A-N. I'll have a link in the show notes. And finally, as always, I want to remind people, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of our great content. And you can also find uh, the video of the podcast at our website, www.fmvp.org. So with that, we're going to end it here. I'm Lara Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Here, thank you again, Omar Rahman, um, and signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thanks so much for having me, Laura.